0: They told me I use my mouth good, so I started a podcast. All right. Hello and welcome to Iconisass. I am MK Lords, and I have a very special guest joining me today. His name is Connor Habib and he runs the Against Everyone podcast. And I came across Connor through a good friend of mine and someone who's been on the program before, Angela Keaton. So welcome to the show, Connor. It's so great to have you. (laughs) Thank you. So I've I like like and retweet probably all of your stuff.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That is the proper response. Thank you. You're you're like one
0: of the people on my list of people. It's like, just, you know, follow these people. And this is what MK basically believes. Just uh, retweet all of this stuff. (laughs) So uh, you have such a unique perspective on things. And I wanted to introduce my audience to you because I I love your podcast. And I just love, I, I think you have such an interesting worldview on so many topics, and we're going to kind of get into that in a little bit. But I want to know more about you. I want to introduce you a bit more. So, give me a little bit of information about your background. And-
1: <laughs> okay. Um, well, how far back you want me to start? Give me just, just go for it.
0: All the way. Oh my
1: gosh. Okay. So. Well,
0: you can do a condensed version of that. Okay. Your um,
1: bio. <laughs> I grew up in Pennsylvania. <laughs> I grew up in small town Pennsylvania, which actually did have a really huge influence on who I am now, that environment, I think about it a lot because I grew up, you know, my father is a Syrian immigrant. Uh, my mom's from Buffalo, New York, but my, uh, and is Irish, but growing up in that small town, people didn't really have any consciousness of like the world back then, you know, I'm 40 now. And so it was like, <laughs> I, I imagine people from my town seeing my father standing on uh, our porch and his skin is very dark, but he doesn't look black and people being like, what, what is that? You know, like not just having no understanding of Middle Eastern or Arab culture, or even existence really where I grew up. So there was that sort of like outsiderness. Um Although I didn't quite get that until I started getting older and people started making fun of me for it. They didn't really know how to make fun of me for it because they thought they, like people, kids would call me Dot, for example, because they thought, that Indian and like Middle Eastern were the same thing. So not only was it the slur, but it was the wrong slur. Um, and Jesus, I yeah. know at least like, don't miss slur me. Right?
0: Um, and, <laughs> I get the same thing yeah. when people like make fun of me. I was like, at least be original. Like, yeah, right. I've been called a cunt a million times, right. like be a little more creative. <laughs>
1: right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So then, you know, not to just make it like oppositional, there were good things about growing up there Two um although it's hard for me to sort of talk about the way that those have influenced me in the same way, I grew up without religion at all my because of my father's uh background, there was no sort of way to reproduce the weird combination of nomadic beliefs and Christianity of where he was from in this little village in the mountains of Syria. Um, and my mom was raised by religious fundamentalists. So she had sort of rebelled against. So, you know, they would take me here and there to different churches just to see, do you like this? And, you know, I never really did, except there's a Sunday school with really cute boys that I decided to keep going back to that I didn't quite understand why. And then there's that. Then there's like, Begin to understand that I was attracted to other guys, and that was also something that was you know there was an outsider-ness to that, so there are all these sort of like tangles of outsiderness there's i'm not religious like a lot of people like most people, Catholic or Protestant, where I grew up. Um, I have this immigrant father. I start, It starts dawning on me that I'm attracted to guys. I'm also smart, which is something that you're not supposed to say you are. Even now, there's this cultural taboo against it. But it became, you know... Very apparent to me as a kid, like just having a thought like, "Why do I have to raise my hand to ask to go to the bathroom like that kind of stuff when you become displaced by what you can see through your intelligence, it makes you disliked by people in authority, so there was that I didn't really play sports, so what I'm saying is that just there were so many instances of feeling of outsiderness as a kid, it was pretty difficult in a lot of ways, but then You know, the ways that I dealt with that started to thread together who I was, who I am now, you know, reading novels, especially and punk rock, you know, and really and just having my own sort of thought I would write about religion and theology. I I have these like little essays that I wrote and then also discovering porn when I was younger and thinking, oh, I kind of want to do that. There are all these sort of ways of dealing with or coping with, but i don 't want to just say that they were in response to these are things that I feel an affinity towards, and i don 't know that it 's as easy as saying, "Well, these are just survival strategies like they're things that I love too, and i don 't want to reduce them to just resistance you know so that's that's the that 's the foundation. And we can keep going after that, but. (laughs) Yeah, well, I I am curious
0: because you are, you are so outspoken and you do have such a radical perspective on things. And I, I kind of have some similarities with my background. I grew up in the South. Um, I wasn't raised with religion, but I did get influenced by the kind of cultural Christianity that was around me, but I rebelled against a lot of it. I got into like the kind of punk rock scene. I realized I was queer like very early on, although I didn't know what to do with that (laughs) like Uh I didn't know like if I was allowed to like that they're just I don't know there weren't (laughs) discussions really being had about it and as far as in my interactions with other kids were it was always very difficult so I would do a lot of reading instead like I was kind of like a you know book nerd and got bullied a lot for that stuff but and it just made me rebel even more so like when you grow up in these kinds of you're already an outsider to mm. so much of the world. It does, I think, kind of lend itself to more radical ideas because you start thinking about like, oh, well, this is the world I'm living in. I'm so much very different from even like from an internal because I just knew I was I was just different internally from other kids. Like I, of course, everyone's influenced by different things they're around as a child and stuff. But I do remember having very specific thoughts of my own and being like, "Oh, mm-hmm. I like this kind of weird stuff," or like, "I like this kind of thing." And I there were, would have been no indication of like how I would have been influenced to think in that way. Right. Yeah. So yeah, and I got into as many like weird niche <laughs> things as i could find uh-huh. trying to rebel in any way that i could because it was the south it was, it was like a military town and got lots of bullying and lots of poverty and stuff too i don't think you know coming out of where i came out of i would be anything but a radical and so what were the kind of first radical whether it was activism or like a lifestyle stuff that you kind of got into like mm. yeah well
1: i mean Like the earliest thing, (laughs) well, (laughs) let me start with the very earliest thing. I remember my first, my first moment of activism that I recall was like seeing a picture of seals being clubbed. And I was, I must have been probably like eight years old. Cause I remember the house that I was in when I did this and we moved around a little bit after my parents got divorced. And I wrote a sign that said, do laws stop seals from being clubbed? No, we must end this. And I hung it on the mailbox of my house, <laughs> which I'm sure the mailman was like, or the mail carrier was like, uh, what, what? Does this have to do with me? But I, d- I just had no idea what to do. I was like, we can't keep killing baby harp seals. Like I just like lost my mind, and uh, so there was that. I wrote a letter to it wasn't. It must have been George uh, George Bush, the first, about how I thought he was a wicked person. You know, I was very <laughs> as young when I did that. I also remember refusing when Ronald Reagan was reelected. I went into school and I remember this girl, Kristen, sitting next to me and she said, Ronald Wagon won, like, give me a five because all the kids were informed by their conservative parents. And I said, I'm not going to high five you for that. And I was, that was like second grade, you know, or whatever grade that was. And I, and so I remember this like weird spirit of resistance, even to things I didn't quite get. I think it really took root when I, m- maybe my last year of high school, I started setting up punk rock shows um because my town was in the middle of nowhere i was bored and i had lots of friends who were in bands so i started setting up shows and then i would call booking agents and obviously this is just like pre-internet and just be like who's coming to town and try to find out when the bands that i liked which that's its own question how did i even find out who these bands were it's, it's so weird for me to think of that time like Oh, I saw like the opening acts or I get like a labels catalog and just order something, or I would just go to a record store and just pull out something that looked cool and buy it, you know? Um, and I would just book those bands. And so I did that at the Syrian society, um, building, which was set up by, you know, there were a lot of after time, Syrian immigrants in my area. And, um, and then I started a record label and, it, it's interesting because we have all this like debate now about like, well, our aesthetics really political, like is wearing like a nose ring political or whatever, but like definitely setting up these punk rock shows and presenting like a DIY, uh, aesthetic and also like the possibility of this DIY thing that was radical. And it really, I think did infuse a lot of people, not just like, to stop being bored, to give them some sense of meaning in in this meaningless place, to um, bring a political message to the town, but also just to treat art as something that was... Like, I always tried to bring bands, not just, like, pop-punk bands, but, like, these more serious, artsy, post-punk bands. That's who I liked, you know? And um, to treat this space as something that wasn't just fun, but that could have been could have given some other kind of meaning, you know, sometimes it was just fun, pop punk dance, but a lot of times it wasn't. So I think that's when I really kind of dug in. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, art and music is so important, especially if you don't feel like you maybe fit into other, you know, groups or cliques of people. Like I know I used going to shows a lot as an escape from whatever was happening in my life, you know, growing up and, music has always been just such a huge part of my life and it's just so important for so many people and yeah you can kind of get in the weeds of like oh well oh uh you know do we have to treat everything like do the kind of separating the art from the artist debate that people like to have it's like oh well looking back this doesn't age well this old punk summer like whatever and um, i mean that's a useful discussion to have but for so you know many people it's it's like a lifeline for them, like being able to have, go somewhere and feel accepted by a community of people who have the same kinds of interests that are very outside of the interests of, you know, maybe the kind of broader culture Yeah, grow up. And, and punk was like a huge lifeline for me. It just made – it's so much of an attitude, too. It's like so much beyond music. It's very much like – I knew I didn't fit in on so many levels and I like I hated school, like I I hated authority, just kind of naturally. I wouldn't stand for the pledge and catch no end of shit for that. Like Yeah (laughs) was doing stuff like that. And and it's like, no, these are here's my people. Here's people who they don't fit in. They're not only are they saying we're not gonna try to fit in, we're not gonna try to assimilate, but we're gonna stand out and we're gonna like force you to confront this. And right. there's something that I really love about that spirit.
1: Yeah, and it would that, that spirit was like hated, right? So the thing that's great about it but also can become a problem for people like you and I, I would well let's just see if this is true for you, but for me, for sure, in our lives is you begin to become dependent on that spirit of resistance even when you don't need it. So like <laughs> You know, my sense of identity as a kid was so wrapped up in being like, fuck you, right? I knew my teachers were dumb for the most part. I knew that they were abusive, even in some ways. I mean, I had a teacher kick me in the stomach in class. Like, oh, I had another teacher tell me he was going to strangle me, you know, like, and I, I mean, I was, I was not like some total jerk, you know, like I, Like, you wouldn't have the image of me as being, like, the bad kid. You'd have the image of me being, like, the kid who was, like, failing out and who just didn't give a shit. But, like, you know, I mean, I had, you know, just that horrible public school. It was just atrocious public school system. Which, by the way, nobody likes to call out when we talk about, like, school shootings. Like, that actually, like, kids are in literally one of the... Some kids are in literally the worst place that just feels like torture every fucking day to them. You know, for me, it was torture i didn't shoot anybody obviously but like these torturous spaces so just this constant authority whether it was the teachers the principals bullying the religious culture the ideological stifling all that kind of stuff it was fucking hell and because of that my determination to survive that and get through became such an embedded part of my identity that i've had to work a lot as an adult to sort of undo that and be like Yo, like, I actually have control of my own life to a large extent now in a way that I had zero control back then. And, like, I can not believe in economics as, like, a founding principle of how culture works. And I can still pay my bills. Like, I don't have to fight against the bill when it shows up or whatever. Like, I I can do different kinds of cultural work. It's like – so that, on the one hand, it it helped me survive and it exposed – so much, it exposed power to me, both my own and the, and the kinds of power that were being wielded over me. And on the other hand, it really found an unfortunate symbiotic relationship with my identity that I've been working to sort of undo in some ways since then.
0: Yeah, no, I definitely empathize with that because I... Have found myself being reflexively reactive to some, certain things or things I perceive as authoritarian in any uh-huh. kind of way, <laughs> yeah. and like I have to check that too because yeah, for so long, so much of my identity <laughs> was built around rebelling against you know where I grew up in, where right. you know the the culture of that. My first political stance was anti-war. Uh, like I remember mm. being a very young child and watching what was happening on the television. Kosovo, and just being like, Hmm. what could those people have done that warranted all of this bombing and all of this terrorizing? Like, there's nothing that I could conceive of that they'd done that, like, innocent people could have done to warrant that amount of aggression. And I just kind of took it further from there. And so I was really outspoken uh, in high school. I was in high school during the George W. Bush years. And it it was a very unpopular position to be like Mm anti-war and and outspoken it against a lot of that stuff. And I mean, I was very uh, prone to exaggeration (laughs) As, as a kid. I mean, I almost got, I ended up, I did end up getting kicked off of my school newspaper um but not for uh, the first time i almost got kicked off they didn't kick me off but i i had because i hated school so much that and i frequently compared it to prisons and worse and uh, i was calling my school the auschwitz of learning
1: Uh uh, which (laughs) was maybe yeah maybe not a (laughs) concentration camp but but schools are a bit like prisons i mean i don't think I don't think that's too much of an exaggeration, especially when – at least when I was a kid where, like, you could be paddled, um, yeah. you know, or uh, hit by the teachers, you know, kicked. But I also think the compulsory aspect of it is really insane. Mm-hmm. I, I, I encourage everybody to drop out now if they want to and but just have a plan. You know, I wish I wish someone would have offered me that instead of saying, well, when you're 16, sure, you can quit. But you're just going to be like poor, a pathetic loser forever. If mm-hmm. they would have been like, "Hey, if you're 16, you can quit," and then just like take these classes, get involved in the creative things you actually care about, develop discipline around your creativity, so you can do it on your own. Like that would have been awesome, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I wish I had gone that route too. Because by the time I was in school, I was good at it. Like I figured it out. You know, I figured out what I had to do mm. to make the good grades to get by. But I really actively resented the compulsory nature of it and I've it bored me to death I'd be like reading books on my own yeah like you know stuff that like I was like why aren't we talking about like you know (laughs) all this nerdy philosophy Uh stuff (laughs) or like I was constantly being told like you you have to write for you know an eighth grade reading level like your writing is too you're using words that are too big. use, you gotta, use like, words that the teacher understands. <laughs> yeah, like, and I was just like, but they can use a dictionary. We're in a we're in a place full of books. But I was, I was such a little shit. Like as I got older,
1: I'm not gonna leave that, that in.
0: <laughs> oh, it's going in the mouth noises. <laughs> Oh, God, the cops heard us. Yeah. <laughs> They're coming.
1: No! It's actually just your principal.
0: <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, I also, I mean, hating cops was also, like, one of my early uh. political positions, regardless of, like, who I kind of identified with. I'm going to leave the sirens in. No, I'm just going to leave the whole thing in, because I think it kind of... Yeah. <laughs> kind of backs up what we're, what we're saying. Like, I, uh, there were, there were a lot of cases of police brutality stuff, like mm-hmm. come from the panhandle of the deep south. And it's just very, very violent. I saw the way my friends were being treated. Like, if you looked weird, if you looked alternative in any kind of way, mm-hmm. like you caught no end of shit from people. And so that just made me want to push that envelope even more. I, and, and it's, in, yeah, it's informed a lot of the stuff that I've kind of, Don too. And I I think I'm always probably going to be like some type of radical, some type of like, I'm not going to assimilate, like, fuck your norms kind of person. But I am trying to kind of tone it down a little bit more. And I also do really like hearing other perspectives. And I do like hearing where Hmm. other people are kind of coming from, like, you can't just tear down everything and like, you know, burn it all down without any kind of security for people who already are on the margins or who are already struggling and can barely you know
1: well and like to what purpose are you tearing things down I you know it's something that I try to say you know is like can we focus on you know what we want before we start getting into how to dismantle what we don't want and that is you know in some ways like that punk spirit I think people see it just as the fuck you, I won't do what you tell me aspect where it's just like, I'm resisting you, I'm fighting you. And on the other hand, there's this utopic aspect of it, which is like, you know, the book your own fucking life, maximum rock and roll idea, which is like, I started my own label. I'm 17 years old. I failed at it. I was terrible at it. I I, you know, like I was a mess with it, you know, but I started my own record label. I set up my own shows. That's People really are starting ambitious. their own bands. You know, mm-hmm. it's like so. That is like the utopic project of 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 porn. That's the goal. This is what we want. This is the kind of world we want. But in that action of doing all that, the sort of almost like repressed feeling or the symptoms of we're doing this against what the world is telling us has to come out in the content of the music and all that kind of stuff, you know? Mm -hmm.
0: And as a creative, I kind of face similar like struggles of being able to think and see so far ahead in the future and have so much of an imagination of the way things could be because I and knowing that it's possible with the friendships I have and relationships I have and things like that. It's like we, we can see past this, like we can treat each other in different ways. Yeah. Are, they're more cooperative and and that are better. But you come up against these hard limits of reality that right. say, like, and, you know, how do you reach, how do you reach people who are stuck in that? How do you reach people who think that that's okay, that that suits them, you know, or even the yeah. idea that, like, some of these, uh, kind of like these old you know, old punks even are coming out. It's like, Oh, conservative is the new punk or something. What do you think of that that?
1: That cuckoo crazy. Yeah. Well, that, that's the version of punk that I was talking about. That's, that's bad, which is that I'm just in resistance. It doesn't really matter what I want. There's no moral or ethical ideal here, except resistance in and of itself. So wherever I need to be to feel that, current of resistance that's where i'll go so that's why people go to the alt right but i i think i think one of the best ways to just reach people is to say i mean it's almost it's like life coachy almost where you just sit down and you're like what do you want and they're like like if you ask someone what they want with their lives you're like what do you want oh well i want to make more money well how much well i mean like i don't know like i make like 40,000 now, like maybe like 50,000 by the end of two years. And you're like, no, no, what do you want? That's not what you want. That's what you think is possible. Let's just get rid of all of that. Let's get rid of possible. Tell me what you want. And then they're like, I want a boat. I want a castle. I want like a flying hippopotamus. I want, it's like, go there, you Mm -hmm. know, like get people to cast off their sense of practicality because that's, almost always what's standing in the way and if you can open that up just once for someone now obviously i was talking about this sort of like me 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 capitalist castle on a pony thing which is fine also i think everybody if you want a castle on a pony go for it but it's like when we're talking about political or the world that we want to live in and if you just sort of open that up a little bit for people then they really get a sense of well I can imagine this, and then the next thought might be, what's in the way between this and where we're at right now and that? And that's where work begins, you know?
0: Yeah, and I think so much of that kind of lack of being able to see or even be able to answer that question of like what do i really want comes from things like compulsory schooling where yeah. your imagination is forcibly limited
2: mm-hmm. by
0: the stuff that you're being taught and the information you're being given and even the and i loved 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 reading like i'm a huge book nerd and like to me it was always an escape to like go into a book and realize like oh my god this is like a different world get things could be different especially like sci-fi stuff yeah i love like sci-fi stuff and i think when you can have art that's not associated with compulsory stuff it's it's just a lot easier to kind of open up those doorways for people like so many people just kind of went through school and it's like this thing that you have to do it's like drudgery you're forced to read like it's never fun if you're forced to read a book no matter how cool it is yeah like you couldn't make like stranger and strangely and cool if it's like fucking forced down your throat right. or something is that what
1: you read in high, in high school i'm wondering what books you read in high school having been younger being younger than me
0: so well i i actually for a while i I was really into like horror so i was really into like h.p lovecraft stuff me
1: too but i mean for but for school itself as, oh for school, school reading
0: itself let's see i mean i read a lot of the classics you know uh, uh huckleberry finn um actually my introduction to existentialism was by reading black boy uh-huh. uh which that was like my i think my freshman year And it really resonated with me. And so it was kind of funny because so we were given this book to read and the teacher was like, only read the first part, which is more of his autobiography. And they were like, they were like, don't read the second part where you're not going to be tested on that. Uh And I was like, but that's when he really gets, that's when it really gets real and interesting. And Uh so I was uh, introduced to the idea of existentialism and it really resonated with me because at the time I didn't really believe in anything. I had already, I wasn't raised with religion, but the culture that I grew up around, I was so just repelled by because yeah. there was so much hatred. I mean, like I grew up in walking distance from an abortion clinic that would be protested. Mm. Like violent protests, uh like killing doctors level violent protests. Right. And I was like, if those are Christians, i like, I don't want anything to do with that. And so I was already very skeptical of religion and stuff. And I was like, oh wait a second. Wait, the idea that there is no objective meaning that we can create our own realities, we can create our own meanings out of things gave me So much hope because I was so limited in my freedom at the time wasn't able to get out of my parents house. And that was a bad situation. I had been wanting to be emancipated for a long time. Like I couldn't get out of that situation. I was forced to go to school. I was forced, like all of my activities were being monitored. Mm -hmm. So knowing that like there were other things possible opened up so much to me. So uh, that was kind of my first introduction. And I read other books too. one that really stuck out to me was Beneath the Wheel by Herman Hesse.
1: Oh, yeah, we didn't read it we didn't read any Herman Hesse, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: I was this was in <laughs> an great. AP English yeah. class. I, I was like, I want to take higher level English classes. So not everyone read those books. But that got me on a whole Herman Hesse kick. So I yeah. started, I read like everything he wrote, but Beneath the Wheel stuck out to me because it very much was critical of the schooling system specifically in that book. But I took it just much more broader than that just the system that grinds you down uh-huh. that you're always stuck beneath the wheel and you're always stuck and you see that certain ways in the capitalist system we live under where you have people who feel that like when you said earlier, oh well what do you want to do like what what do you want it's like oh I want you know ten thousand more dollars a year i want more stuff it can become its own trap like it becomes its own cycle that you feel grinded under and the need to kind of keep up with what
1: other people are doing well people don't i mean when you ask someone what they want there's that level of like okay well the practicality is in the way when you ask them what kind of world they want you know and it's often defined by what they don't want so they're like i don't want any child to not have to to not be able to access education or whatever and it's like that's what like I hear what you don't want there so like tell me what you want right but then there's the other level of just not really being in touch with what their desire is to begin with so like I do think some people I think we I think we're little too eager on the left or wherever you might place yourself in this political spectrum to say that people don't really want big cars and they don't really want $250,000 a year salaries and all that kind of stuff. I think that some people really do want that. And we mm-hmm. need to come to terms with the fact that those are real wants, even after people become clear to themselves, you know, but I think a lot of people might answer that and not really know, like the answer of what they want has been compelled in some other way by culture. But I think that that's as true for socialist as it is for like, you know, capitalists, libertarian everybody. I think it's just, you know, wherever you fall. And, but when it comes to how to deal with that, there are lots of ways to deal with that. There are lots of ways to deal with clarifying your desire. And the best way though, I think is just to follow it and see where it leads you, you know? So like, oh, you want that SUV? Go ahead, go get it. Now what? How do you feel about it? You know, a lot of times people are really, really let down when they follow their desire because what they realize is that they wanted to want the SUV. They didn't want to actually have it, you know, because once you have it, you can't want it anymore, but they wanted the feeling of desire, you know, mm-hmm. and that's yeah, something Yeah, that
0: different. dopamine chase is very, you know, it feels very yeah. meaningful. It feels very good. And then, yeah, once you have it, it becomes like, oh, yeah, did I really want this? Or like the novelty of something kind of wears off and
1: Right. And I think if you notice like, oh, what I wanted was to want that, not to have it. What am I gaining from the wanting of it? Then you start asking yourself that question. Then it starts clarifying your desires more. So I think those are all things I do to try to like imagine a better world. Like, what is that What does that look like for me? So I'm not just throwing out wild shit like flying cars and like, you know, like universal education for everybody and, you know, universal basic income. I'm not saying I'm against all those things, but I am just saying I don't throw shit out because it's parroted. I really try to figure out what it is that the world might look like and what I think I want and how to work towards that.
0: Right. Like, there's not going to be a one-size-fits-all solution for everyone. People are so different and are finding more ways to be different. I I think the internet, for example, is such an interesting example of the way we've kind of broken into smaller tribes of people again. Where we've found kind of our, like, ideological niches or or whatever, or, like, the people we resonate most with. And, you know, so there is that kind of, it's a kind of long distance communities in some way. And I think that's really changing the way that we think about like, okay, what's wrong with the current way of thinking about things? What are, what's wrong with the systems? What are some of the solutions? And that's going to look different to different people. So I don't know. I really like, because I've traveled all over the, or I wouldn't say all over the ideological spectrum, but pretty, you know, gone to some weird places mm-hmm. and the more reading i do and the more i kind of interact the more i'm just like i don't know i like to pick and choose what's what i find right about certain things and not be forced into a kind of box because there there's limits with everything there's especially with ideology like i i what do i call myself i i don't know i'm a human <laughs> i'm a human right. that's very anti-authoritarian i don't know that i want to hyphenate that a whole lot i don't know you know, I I'm not sure. I'm what suspicious of now, anybody but... I'm
1: suspicious anybody does. I mean, I don't know about you, but it's, sorry to interrupt you, but like I'm <laughs> suspicious of anybody. They're like, Well, I'm I'm a socialist or I'm I mean, I think anarchist is a fine word in the sense that it describes very little, um, other than just like I'm not most the things that you might think I am. But besides that term, it's like I'm always suspicious when people declare themselves align with any ideology at all. It's actually, I always think, what a failure of your imagination that you would do that. But I also get the idea of, you know, I want a sense of belonging, you know, Mm -hmm. and I, and I myself do it as shorthand sometimes too. It's like, well, we used to say I was gay and now I try to say I'm attracted to men because that's actually more true than giving myself some identity. But sometimes saying gay or queer is like that's shorthand that communicates something to people much more quickly. But lots of people really identify as, you know, a libertarian, I am a libertarian or even weirder. Like they'll get into like their weird, like I'm a Lyndon LaRouchean or whatever, uh, you know, it's like, uh, you know, whatever, like I'm a, I'm a Kantian speculativeist, or some, some shit like that, you know, copy and propertarian. Yeah. Right. <laughs> whatever it God. is. And it's like, just chill the fuck out. Like, you're not like, what are you talking about? You know? So that those, those sen- that sense of belonging When someone finds it by declaring their identity really, really forcefully, I always am like, huh, you know, Mm -hmm. chill out.
0: (laughs) And I've been there. And, like, I've been that person who is like, well, this is the libertarian position. Like, I'm a, you know, libertarian. I mean, like, and I've used, like, stronger labels to identify myself in the past. And I felt so boxed in by it eventually. And... Subject to the criticism from people in those groups if I wasn't, you know, pure enough for them. Like, being mm. as, as subjected to these weird ideological yeah. purity tests. And it's just, like, I, I I, got so tired of it. And it's, like, I – so, yeah, I am somewhere – I use anarchists as, like, a descriptor, you know, and but not even, like, in a prescriptive sense for, like, how do we fix things. Like, it's, it's like, yeah. I don't know. Like, it's going to be different. It's going to be weird. It's going to look – different for different people i just i want the state to leave people alone like i want them to stop hurting so many people can we start with that and see where it leads but uh yeah i mean i i hate feeling pigeonholed into any one thing and i've caught a lot of criticism (laughs) since like moving away from the libertarian world the past few years that i've been doing out of like because a lot of my friends and like I, a lot of my listeners still identify as that, but I, uh, you know, posted. Unpopular opinion about something, or something that's like a matter of taste or like uh-huh. preferences, small stuff, and I'll get like a bunch of libertarians jumping on me, being like, "Oh, well, you know, <laughs> that's well, not the libertarian position." Is someone? Someone was like, "What happened to the libertarian MK I used to know?" And it's like, I my views on things haven't really changed that much. Uh-huh. I've had the same kind of internal sense of values throughout much of my life i just stopped using certain labels and i stopped giving power to those labels too as like this is the best most objective solution to things
1: right well probably at a certain point in your life you decided that libertarian ideas were the best way to express something that you were still working to articulate on your own Mm -hmm. so like you find this like coherent or seemingly coherent you know idea set and you're like well Maybe not exactly right, but this is saying what I've been trying to say, at least in some ways. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to use this now, right? I mean, I think (laughs) it's interesting. Like, I've been thinking about libertarianism. Lately, in the sense of like, it's so similar to socialism in so many ways. And I and I've just been seeing these like clashes between them so much. And I don't just mean in in like the acceptance of the state or certain forms of authority or this sort of anti spirituality sentiment of both of them. Those are all there, too. Those are all similarities. But just the idea that, the, that economics is real and worthwhile at all. So, the, you know, libertarianism has this idea that somehow the market and the state are, like, oppositional, but really they're kind of, like, really woven into each other, like, very intensely. And socialism thinks that they're woven into each other intensely, but that, like, economics is somehow it's like a reality claim. Like it has some sort of like ontological reality. Economics has no economics is just made up bullshit. And the, and the, (laughs) it's it's a way of, it's a way of talking about, (laughs) it's a way of talking about certain patterns of behavior. But I think like if anybody's read debt by David Graeber, like, I think that that's a pretty good exploration of this topic where he, because he's an anthropologist is like, um, what exactly are economists naming here if i really look at history and different cultures like throughout history and also right now there are certain forms of behavior that seem to relate to this abstract thing that someone named economics at a certain point but really that's they're not really that related it is this totally arbitrary system just like um you know in medicine our immune system is a completely arbitrary concept we we have a whole body and to understand how certain things work in that body and how maybe certain diseases and pathologies work, people decided to constitute this idea of immunity and an immune system. But of course, all the parts of the immune system relate into flow into interact with different parts in the whole organism. And so then, you know, like you hit a wall when you're thinking about, Oh, well, the immune system deals with this disease or this bacteria or this virus in in one way or another, and we can't figure out how to overcome it. It's like, well, yeah, that's because the foundation of your thinking of how the body works is actually incorrect. And it's the same thing with economics. It's like, well, you see all this economic turmoil. Well, that's because your idea of what the foundation of this thing is like is fundamentally flawed. It's not naming anything real. It's lines and framework you put around certain kinds of behavior, but that's it. And now that that's not useful anymore, actually probably hasn't been useful for a long time, but it's not useful anymore. So now what? Can we come up with something different?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that is such, I think, it's a thing libertarians, I think, really get stuck in is the idea that there is this – Perfect, like, economic system, and the the free market's gonna take care of everything. Well, free markets don't really ever exist, like, in the way that they want right. to say they exist. You don't have free markets under capitalism or a patriarchy or any of these things. Like, all, all of these cultural factors influence behavior, influence human action. And if they're misinformed about something, it doesn't matter. Like, and, and also, there's no, like, there's also, I, I don't like the way some of them put morality. On economics yeah. scenarios, it's like free markets are no more moral. Like it's it's not a moral claim on anything. It's it's just what is. It's people interacting, people having commerce of some kind, mm-hmm. and you can I guess label that whatever you want. You can say it's it's the you know best thing ever, and it's going to solve all these problems. But until you kind of are aware. Of What's influencing that human action, then are we really ever going to be able to see this ideal version of a free market? Because I think a lot of them basically want the version of capitalism that already exists, but with less government, slightly less government. It's like, you still think things would be the same, you still want all the same cultural factors in place. A lot of times mm-hmm. you don't even want to really address those. And it's like, that's not great for women or like a lot of right. other people. Like, yeah, it, it might be great for you. Uh, you know, a lot of libertarians are middle class white men. It's like, yeah, maybe uh the government taking taxes from you is the worst thing that's ever happened to you. And that's uh-huh. why that's going to be like you're right. to die on is the taxes thing. A lot of us have gone through a lot more complicated issues than right. that. It's like it's given us a kind of different perspective. So, uh, and especially as someone who I did so much, and still so many of my friends are involved in the activist world. And I think there's, you know, some good work that's being done, but it's so the perspectives of women um, and other people, especially, are just kind of downplayed or not seen as important. Uh, there's always a constant question why aren't there more women in? X, Mm. you know, (laughs) and even if you give a bunch of reasons why you're still not really listened to, it's right. And
1: also, then that question can overwhelm the concerns, like, why aren't there more women in STEM? It's like, wait, 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 why do we want people in STEM? You know, like, there are these diversions that are that happen in the questions, and then in who's listened to and given answers. And then, like, there's no fundamental reappraisal of a lot of these things. So when you talk about free markets, I brought up the immunity thing before, because I you know, went to school for Organismic and Evolutionary Biology for three years in grad school. And I think that my science training taught me so much about how the world works. I didn't do lab work, but I did... Well, we won't get into it. But another example that I would bring from that world is like, we think that water is H2O, right? But, but there's no water h2o in the world water always has other shit in it like you like pull water from a river or a spring or a well or a lake or the ocean there's always other stuff in there mixing in and constituting what we call water you can create something kind of like h2o quality water in a lab and that's what these philosophy and economic books do they create this sort of ideological purity from the beginning so you're talking about like purity before it's like the purity is actually like from the beginning a total falsehood that's supposed to give us a better way of talking about things and it's fine to do that it's fine to have a concept that is somehow pure but it's not fine to forget that the metaphorical framework that you've created is actually made up. It's a decision you've made to go forward with. And I think that that's a little crazed to forget that, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Reality is really messy. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> and I think a lot of people, having been an activist and stuff, I mean, like, I I am very I, idealistic sometimes, you know? I, I think that's a problem. That's a constant problem, like uh, reconciling that idealism with the harsh limits of reality and what are ways that you can kind of push the discussion forward in productive ways. I don't know. There's not concrete answers to this and this idea that, you know, you can have a perfect antidote for something. It's just, it just is absurd to me. Um, I started another series kind of breaking down Jordan Peterson's book. I don't know if you've read the 12 Fools for God, Life.
1: God forbid I ever read
0: that fucking book, but go ahead. I'm doing it for everyone. i am taking <laughs> one for the team with this god-awful fucking book. Okay, I should be a little more <laughs> objective. I'm supposed to be more objective about my analysis with this. Why? Nobody but, else uh, says. But Why
1: should you hold yourself to that? I, I'm not, yeah.
0: <laughs> I know. I'm so, I've never, like, done so much shit talking about it, but... I think his book is a good example of what you're saying. Like, people aren't even asking, like, there's a problem with the question and with the premise of something that's just inherently wrong. Like we don't have the right premises. We're not even asking the right questions and his whole idea is like 12 rules for life and antidote to chaos. And it's like, that's, that's cute. You think you've got this all solved? you think you can, but that brings a lot of people safety and security. If you come from a very chaotic life or something, some people like more structure than others. And I said this when I, started analyzing this book like if that brings people comfort and security that's fine that's good but like i think the whole premise is flawed that like you can come up with a great system to escape the messiness and chaos of society
1: or or that you want to i mean let me try to respond to jordan peterson without really talking about him too much because jordan peterson is completely dumb and i don't think he's helping people in any way i think that he's I just think that he's stupid frankly I think that he's like there's just nothing of value and so I think that um <laughs> but what he is is a jungian and um jung is also stupid and valueless and <laughs> the reason the reason why someone like Jordan Peterson who is a jungian would come up with ideas that were supposed to be neat is he expresses this you know this jungian idea of archetypes okay and that those are real so you see this dumb thing where like Jordan Peterson's like, well, a witch in a swamp is the most real thing there is, if you think about it. And it's like, no, actually, what you're trying to say there, which is idiotic, is that there's some sort of cosmic archetype. I'm not going to argue with the cosmic spiritual dimension of it, but you're trying to say that these things are fixed somehow. Like, mm-hmm. you're trying to find a place to relax in, in something that's fixed. And the whole reason why Jung is completely stupid and worthless is because... If there are archetypes, just as if there are laws of nature, just as anything, they're also evolving and changing over time. So think about it this way: if I walk through a field, and I'm, I'm borrowing from someone else, actually, this metaphor. But if I walk through a field, it's actually not even a metaphor. It's just I'm borrowing from someone else this entire thing. If I walk through a field and I see flowers, and then I go back a year later and I see the same flowers, it's a different field, not just because the flowers have changed, but because I have a memory of it. So I add something to it every time I go somewhere. So this is something that Gilles Deleuze said. It's something that Rudolf Steiner says. It's something a lot of people say. Every time I go somewhere that I've been before, I make something new of it because I have a memory of it. So something's been added to the world. It's been added to the universe. So this idea that things are fixed and not changing and somehow work themselves through our lives and we're bound to these archetypes is a completely anti-human project. It's an idea Mm -hmm. that, like, we don't bring anything to the table and when in fact like no actually we're constantly changing the world with every single breath every thought every movement and i'm not saying all those are bound out of come out of free will some of them are just us on automatic but things are still changing and even the archetypes and the laws of nature are changing and so that's why someone like him it's like oh we want to make you feel comfortable by well okay everything seems chaotic but like these witches are as real as can be I don't care that he says witches are real. That's what everybody gave him shit for. Like, oh, you believe in witches and swamps? You're so stupid. I don't care about that. I believe in witches and swamps. But what I don't believe in is this idea of what is – it's not just that I don't believe it. It's just just completely false. Is this notion that something essential is fixed and that we can relax and laze back into that because that's just sort of these forces that are making the world together. It's just not true. Yeah. So
0: or that there was this previous point in history right. that was pure and good and, and benefited everyone that's literally never existed. You can't take these ideas out of their historical context either. Even yeah. the idea of a witch, what is he saying when he's like, Oh, we are all familiar with the witch in the swamp and the the whole archetype <laughs> of like a witch as an idea. Well, what what happens when you look at what a witch was in the historical context or a witch
1: is in Papua New Guinea now, or, or a witch which is, is in a, <laughs> Yeah. Which
0: is ever, like, what, what do you witch? mean by that? Which, which? <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, yeah, none of these things are, are divorced from the context that they existed in. And the, even his whole uh, the feminine dragon of chaos thing comes <laughs> from such an anti-woman yeah. and the witch thing, too. I mean, witches were the women who... Historically, uh, gained control of their reproduction and showed other women how to do that. Not all witches—I don't want to say all witches—but you know, yeah. like that's that was why they were so hated. That's why they were they were turned into an archetype. Mm-hmm. Was this hatred that like women could have control over when they gave birth? That that's a very still historically new concept.
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: um, in a lot of ways, um, but it's it's an old. It's an old thing that, you know, women were attacked for. And, like, so much of his thinking in the book is kind of based on this, like, wonderful, historical golden ages. It never were.
1: Uh-huh. Like, they just, yeah. just
0: this has never existed in the way that he's it arguing. It never existed in our existed. culture. It
1: and it certainly does not exist cross-culturally. So what the fuck are you talking about? Like, like that too, what yeah. is it? There's, like, if you look at what a witch is or a dragon is or what's considered feminine, there are... There are indigenous people that understand themselves to be dead and that they're all dead. They're just walking around in death, right? There are people that can see Saturn with a naked eye. This has been recorded by anthropologists. There are people who have a different perceptual, I mean, their eyes and their ears experiences than we do. And this is all recorded. I mean, it's just a matter of just, it's there. We can notice it. I'm not even appealing to all the other stuff I could say by bringing in the occult or people's so-called magical powers or whatever, or like yogis or what any, or fuck or any of that kind of stuff. But I just think like just culturally these archetypes are dumb. They don't apply to anything. It was also, it's also why I hate Joseph Campbell. It's like, I remember just <laughs> yes. being like really set free by reading this book of, native american myths and the intro was like you're not going to understand these dear reader like unless you're native yourself you're not going to get this shit and so called it said something like so-called experts of mythology like joseph campbell and it was because the sense of cause and effect is different the narrative structure is just almost incomprehensible to western colonial people so these ideas they sound you know nice and they're comforting but they're they're ultimately just idiotic and damaging and they're trying to c- collect i mean is it is it It's an intellectual gulag if if I'm going to turn his own terms against him. You know what I mean? It's like, let's just round everybody up into this sameness of conformity and pretend somehow we all work this way. Well, no, you really don't. He wants the the most boring world possible. Yeah. Like I'm
0: reading his book and I'm just like, maybe that brings some people peace and whatever. And like, that's fine for them. But like, I could not imagine a more fucking boring reality (laughs) than, like, oh, yeah, well, we just need, you know, traditional gender norms. Like, he, and it's so frustrating because he's saying that you have to take responsibility for your life while blaming it on society, too. Oh, feminism is destroying everything. He's a professional victim. Yeah, he's a professional victim. I'm like, you can't have it both ways. Well, you can have it both ways, clearly, and write a bestseller. (laughs) Right. But the whole victimhood mentality that the right tries to take on while railing against is just, it's so dishonest and it's so frustrating and it's so fucking boring.
1: Yeah. And, uh, and on the other hand, I want to just stand up, not of course, for Jordan Peterson, but I was really irritated by all the people that sort of were like, (laughs) he believes in dragons and witches. Like, and I just thought, well, that, I mean, who the fuck are you? Like literally every culture that has ever existed on this planet ever except European like so-called Western culture has accepted these things as true and not in the Jordan Peterson way but accepted variations of fairies, angels, dragons, witches you know, like, which doctors, monsters, spiritual beings, all that kind of stuff. Those are ultimately varied. And like, it's so many different versions of that, that they're not contained by Jordan Peterson's dumb idea of it. But they're also everywhere. And why are leftists like condemning him for that reason? It seems to just be like, well, this is like, this is also completely stupid. Y'all
0: accept your crystal chakra healing friends. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, right, yeah, right. Don't fucking act like this. Yeah, totally. <laughs> this is limited to Jordan Peterson. And, and yeah, like, I don't necessarily think he's dumb. I think his ideas are boring and, yeah. like, played out. And I've heard them a million times in a million different ways and said way fucking better, too. Because I don't know how you take the story of Genesis and make it even more boring than it already is. But he <laughs> manages to do that in uh, Chapter 1 of <laughs> his book. And yeah, but I, I think he's shrewd. I think he knows exactly what he's doing to a degree. He he understands enough of power, even in his limited perspective on things, that I I think he's manipulative. And that's yeah, yeah.
1: Very well i th- that, i will th- but... just i'll just reassert that i think he's dumb. Yeah. I d- I actually don't think he's intelligent. I don't think he's an intelligent person. And that comes I mean, out he's of lazy. like I, think he's I don't think lazy. like my high school teachers were intelligent either. You know, they got a job. I don't think the principal or the superintendent were particularly intelligent. I don't think most politicians are particularly intelligent. Like you watch them on C-SPAN and you're like how the fuck did this person yeah. become powerful? You know, and we shouldn't confuse someone that's navigated the Pretty, actually, in some ways, easy to navigate pathways of power, you know? Like, all you have to do to navigate the pathways of power is step on people. That's it. Like, you just have to be willing to step on people to get to a certain... Place, You know, whether you want to be like the king's lackey who like will, you know, throw anyone into the alligator pit at any moment to impress the king or sorry to sound so Jungian there or if you uh, (laughs) or if or or just like working your way through politics and being corrupt and taking money from people or whatever. It's easy, actually, to become powerful if you don't give a shit about people. So Mm -hmm. I don't view that as a sign of intelligence either. I just view that as someone who's willing to be an asshole, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, I had the same problem growing up, too, and, like, realizing that the adults around me were just not that smart. Yeah. Like, having those blinders, like, taken off and realizing, like... Because for so long I had this mentality. It was like, oh, everyone around me is so stupid. When I grow up, I'll be surrounded by smart people. And, like, uh, adults have their shit together. And, like, now no one has their shit together. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, everyone's – a lot of people – not everyone, but, like, a lot of people are really power hungry or don't have any ethics or just totally incompetent about things. And if you work for people, yeah, that's often going to be your bosses or your managers or, you know – just because someone's in a position of authority doesn't make them intelligent. Your president. You know, any any politicians. I've always been skeptical of power and politicians too. And I, I backlash a lot when I was younger and I, I worked with like the Democrats for a while and I got really disillusioned with them too because and you kind of see this, like, I, I kind of want to touch on because Pride's coming up this week, this weekend in L.A. And, like, I, <sighs> I want to pick, <laughs> I, I can already tell, I want to pick your brain on what does that sigh mean, yeah. like, you know. <laughs> the, but the idea of, like, politics co-opting movements and, yeah. like, the, the idea that, like, left or right, like, it doesn't matter. These politicians are not generally out to help. The little man or the uh-huh. the people in any kind of way. They just want notoriety. They just want power and they don't care how they get it. And they're willing to steamroll over grassroots activists to get it or like try to force their agenda. I, I tried to organize an anti-police brutality rally um, in Pensacola and... The Democratic Party was like, hey, come to our meetings. Like, oh, yeah, that rally sounds great. Why don't you let some of our politicians come in and talk? And I was like, that's not what this is. This isn't about you. Quit making this about you. And your Democratic fucking politicians are never going to get elected here anyway. You're just wasting people's time and money. And you're trying to shoehorn your bullshit laws into something that is just about this one topic. Police stop killing people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it mm-hmm. doesn't have to be more complicated than that. You don't right. have to like try to wedge in your weird personal agenda.
1: So I hate them too. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs>
0: I want to know what that sigh was about. Because I am okay, to yeah. find you're just like,
1: ah. Well, I mean, I, that, that sigh is coming from particularly like recently, I just tweeted about some person in, the UK tweeting something about like the US is so intolerant that they don't allow police at their pride parades.
2: Here ah. are
1: here gay police officers proposing to each other at the Pride Parade in the UK. We have something called tolerance here. And I was like, okay, this is just a new way for Pride to be dumb and I got shit from it, you know, shit about it for, you know, from people and and I was just like, wow, I'm really – I'm shocked the lengths that people go to defend the police. And then people were like, the police in the UK are so much different. I'm like, I know the police in the UK are different actually. Mm-hmm. Like there is a big difference. However, I mean, first of all, the first police force was started there. So let's not pretend that and, – and it was done to suppress basically Irish people and obscenity. So like let's not pretend that you're so like blameless because actually the skull crushing started there. But <laughs> – you yes. did. There still is racism and police brutality there all the time. And just because like the cops are hip to the neoliberal gay agenda in the UK, fuck all that. But even more so than that, the police here are something completely different too. And why should we be so welcoming of their presence? We can do shit ourselves. And that's what I want to say again and again to people like we can do this shit. Ourselves, like we don't need these institutions and people in power, whether it's settling a dispute without calling the police. Or whether it's setting up a gay pride parade and figuring out what are we going to do if someone tries to bash us or whatever while we're doing that. Or whether it's like, you know, learning how to take care of your body so you don't have to go to the doctor as often or whatever it is, like stop depending on these systems of authority and power. Not that we can't ever have them or fund them or whatever, and not that it's going to change overnight or any of that kind of stuff. But that's like a deeper issue. For pride, that was where the sigh was coming from. I think for me, it's just at this point, even saying you're gay at this point is almost meaningless. It doesn't designate very much anymore. Certainly saying that you're queer, as I know you did earlier and lots of people do. So I'm not saying anything about specific people, but, you know, queer is like, I say, it's like the new... It's like the straight person way of saying, like, I'm 127th Cherokee. It's like people claim, <laughs> you know, this like linguistic aesthetic as if it designates something, which it really less and less tells me anything about anybody. So when I hear pride parade I or pride celebration, I'm thinking mostly of, oh, this is it's like when you see shed snake skin on the ground or like like a cicada shell clinging to a tree. This is like the dead husk of the living thing that's still out there, but this is not it, you know, and yes. people treat that as if it is the beautiful butterfly. But in fact, no, it's like the dead skin, you know? Yeah.
0: <laughs> that's a really good way to put it. And I think when it comes to policing and pride in the U S you have to have a good understanding, like historical understanding of both. And where they kind of come from, so if uh, the comparing u k police to like u s police is pretty much meaningless to me because I know how the police started in this country, yeah, and <laughs> they started uh, policing was a way to like round up slaves, yeah slaves that had escaped um If you understand that, then it makes the whole rest of the context of policing now still make more sense. Are <laughs> was that a historical point in history? Yes, was it a long time ago? Yes, but those the way they set up the structure from that, we're still living under. It's there's still a ton of racism. There's still yeah. there's class mixed up in that too. But yeah, to say that like the police should somehow be seen as allies during Pride is even more ridiculous and offensive because Pride came out of a very hmm. radical event. Uh, it, yeah. People can kind of debate on the time, but like if we go back to Stonewall, for example. Well, they all
1: relate to the police. They all relate to policing authority in one way or another. Whatever yes. the event you want to stay as the initiating event. And what you say is really good about, well, I know it was a long time ago, but the problem is not that it was a long time ago or that it happened yesterday. It's that we don't talk about that.
0: Yeah, and, and so, it was built up on top of that yes. with those things integrated. So until we degree. see
1: the origins of what uh, – until the origins are – As present for us in our understanding of what police are, then we can't pretend that that's the work that needs to happen. That history that you know, that you've done work researching and thinking about and talking to people about and understanding, it's like that needs to come to the surface culturally before we start talking about what police are or are not in the present day. Otherwise, you're just hiding the history and pretending nothing happened, you know, that Mm -hmm. that didn't exist.
0: Yeah, the police have been used to actively suppress the rights of people, you know, since basically they're, you know, they started in the U.S. uh, in so many ways. And so, like, I don't view working with them as helpful in any kind of way. Their origins aren't peaceful. They're not there to keep the peace as much as, you know, that's kind of trotted out as the thing they're supposed to do. It's like if they're here to keep the peace, why are they dressed like the military?
1: Right. What yeah. does the
0: military do? <laughs> you know,
1: increasingly dressed like the military. Increasingly, increasingly dress like dressed like these like weird the insectoid like segmented body armor. Like, yeah. Weird like not even human anymore but just to look like killbots, you know.
0: Right. Well, and it's part of that. If you can, you know, you separate yourself enough from the people you're persecuting, they're not people anymore. Do you? Right. You're you not a person to them anymore. You know, you can decompartmentalize things in that way and carry out who knows what kind of horrible stuff. I mean, Stonewall, they call it the Stonewall riots, but it was an act of self-defense against the police. Right. The police started the riots. Mm-hmm. The police were the ones that were going into, and not just Stonewall, but a bunch of bars, raiding them, killing people, arresting people for things that they were doing privately in their own lives. I mean, hurting, uh, you know, kids that had been thrown out into the streets. It's still, it's still a serious problem. You know, like, Pride, are, are we talking about, you know, the problems of homelessness that... Kids are still facing, like LGBTQ kids. Can they go to the police for help? Can they depend on the police for help? Like, or do they just kind of disappear into the system? Like, can they do other uh things to make money so that they can survive that's not going to make them have to interact with the police, you know, in right. some kind of horrible way? So, yeah, like, I it is frustrating because, like, I do want to celebrate because, like, I had to, I recloseted and came out again and so it is important for me to like be visible to other people who aren't able to do that and then have and, and celebrate it in some way but like i don't want to have to look at the fucking cops like i don't want to have to like right. interact with them i they have nothing but they've done nothing but i don't know had nothing but negative experiences when it comes to the police in my life and so have a lot of other uh lgbtq people and so yeah, yeah you can be you can be gay and be a cop and like yeah.
1: You can be You can, do. You can be black and be Maybe. responsible for droning other countries and starting wars you
0: right know? <laughs> I, I don't i don't want more queer police officers no like, that's not my version <laughs> right. like of um, that version of liberalism to me is just so repulsive it's like no we don't need more female drone pilots right. <laughs> we don't need more female cia directors. female yeah. cia directors yeah yeah it's like that's not that's so again like a lack of imagination with like the way things could be like no we don't have to fit whatever you want to call people marginalized people or whatever into the right. society like we don't all have to be joining the military or joining the police or getting married and having kids right. and you know the term like picket fence queer is like that doesn't really appeal to me uh, and yeah. it's fine if it appeals to other people that's totally fine but like i just still want to retain that degree of radicalism, like uh, with whatever I'm kind of making and just there's a diversity of tactics when moving society forward. I think you need kind of all kinds, you know, I think there are people doing really good work uh, in government, like, uh, you know, Elizabeth Edwards, Representative Elizabeth Edwards, she's in New Hampshire, Mm -hmm. she's fighting a lot to decriminalize sex work. I think the work she's doing is super important and really, really, really awesome. Am I going to be a politician? Probably not. Am I also going to be supportive of the people who are like, you know, let's just break the law, fuck it. Like we're going to do what we want. We're not going to wait for change, we're going to take it now. Like yeah, you need those people too.
1: Right. Yeah, I mean, I think I think what you're speaking to is like the variations, different levels of saying okay, questions of tactics and also compassion. So I had Alex Vitale on my show against everyone with Connor Beeb and he's a police scholar. He wrote a book called The End of Policing, and at one point in the show, I asked him in that episode, "I'm like, you, you seem to have a lot of compassion for the police in your book, which is, you know, controversial probably for your <laughs> some people in your audience because he really is like really doing a lot of work to sort of dismantle the police, the police's power." So um, German sh- German Shepherd the canine unit is coming for us now. Oh God! Um, <laughs> no, not the dogs! Not the dogs! <laughs> and so, <Bad> <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so I, you know, I asked him about that, and he was like, you know, they're overburdened; they just are doing too much. And actually getting rid of their power will support them as human beings. Right. And I agree with that. Like, of course, I have the anger of like, well, if you want to be a cop, you must be an asshole. Right. Or if you want to be a politician, you must be an asshole. That's true. But there are lots of things about people that make them assholes, you know, and it's like, do I want to work to just exile everybody that's ever You know, created a problem. And if I do that, then I'm just reenacting the punitive and carceral states' moves, which is like problematic person, shuffle them out of sight or kill them. You know? And I don't think that way. I think, well, no, actually, we need to do something with the people that made the poor decision to be cops. We need to do something with the trans people who have made the foolish decision to be in the military, or we need to do something about, you know, the gay people who have made the dumb decision to support marriage. So it's like, we have all these like questions. It's like, okay, so what, What were you trying to get out of that? Maybe I can sympathize with that. I can sympathize with gay men who didn't want their partners to be deported. Great. Let's work on deportation. I can sympathize with trans people who want – who felt like they didn't have other options and like went into the military for benefits. Great. Let's work on that shit. But like let's not forgive the fucking imperialistic violence-bound – and normative monogamy relationships state bound structures that you're all participating in, just to try to get at the rights that we all actually have, whether the state tells us we have them or not, let's do something else there, so there's that, and then I just also think there's these tactics levels like with when you're talking about um representative Edwards, like she seems pretty dope to me. I think I mean, in a good dope, like sorry, I don't know if people use that word anymore, but yeah, like I know. she she's, seems dope to me she's like totally cool, yeah, she like, seems cool I've, right
0: I'm friends with the New Hampshire people up there, All right and like yeah i've she's awesome, yeah,
1: and so, but do I support people entering into the political structure in that way? No, I think that that's a bad decision, however. What she's doing is creating room for us. And I don't have to condemn her forever for deciding to be a politician. I also don't have to celebrate it. What I can get on board with is like essentially she's doing on the ground activism in a weird way, you Mm -hmm. know, or at least it will become on the ground activism for us who decide to make use and utilize the space that's made by her actions. So let's do that, you know yeah Mm
0: -hmm. yeah and i think it's really important i really like that podcast by the way uh with alex Mm. i think it's really important to examine why do people feel like they had to make those bad choices right you know and i'm becoming i've been becoming more sympathetic to that over time. Because yeah, I mean, I've been guilty as anyone else of condemning people for working for the state in any kind of capacity. Like I don't call the cops on people like it's just as a rule, like I'm not going to call the cops mm-hmm. to fix the situation, I'm gonna think of more creative ways to fix the situation. Sometimes problems are really hard, you run up with a lot of complications where like it does sometimes feel like you have to use the stakes It's the only thing you can do like what what is the desperation that a lot of these people kind of came out to that caused them to go into policing if you look at the kind of historical context you mentioned in the uk policing was used to kind of attack the rights of irish people and stuff well in the U.S., Irish people were, like, drafted into the cops right. because it was it was a class problem. Like, they, they were poor people trying to struggle, you know, and make it. And policing seemed like a way out. And it still, in many ways, does. And same with the military. I grew up in a military town. I was really anti-war. I mean, and again, I was really – I was a huge asshole about it. And I saw people that I knew, or even people I wasn't super close friends with, but had grown up, and they joined the military. This is, like – you know, post nine eleven, And that was a really popular thing to do. And it was also a way to escape a really economically depressed area that a lot of people had to just claw their way out of by any means necessary. And the military was a good opportunity to do that, especially if you came from an abusive background, mm-hmm. if you came f- or if you didn't have the grades to go to college or whatever, there were a lot of people who the military was their only option for getting out of fucking Pensacola and they took it and they came back from war and I would see them years later and they'd just be like a shell of a person. And I was just like, I have nothing but sympathy for them. Maybe they did horrible things. That's, that's awful. It doesn't excuse that, but they were forced into it by the system that already existed. Like all of these moves of desperation that people feel they have to do to escape the situation that they're in comes from this hardcore push for like heteronormative values and there's religious aspects and stuff too in, in some places too, but a kind of push for suppressing anything that doesn't look like a perfect rosy picture of, you know, like a Norman Rockwell painting or something like mm-hmm. that. Like anything that's outside of that is terrible and, you know, you're, you're not allowed mm-hmm. to do it. And it's like if people were just allowed to express themselves more, if people just had more personal, which I think personal freedom leads to economic freedom, even though, you know, we mentioned earlier economics is kind of made up and all that, but yeah, why are people under these wheels? Like, why do people feel backed up against the wall and let they have to do these things? Why don't we examine that? Why don't Are, are there ways to fix that? Are there ways to make society better so that you don't have to join the military to escape your shitty mm-hmm. life?
1: Yeah, and I think I think that we also – being someone who has radical politics condemning others and wanting them to be punished or put in jail or exiled or all that that's also another version of making shitty decisions because you feel like you don't have any power unless you appeal to the state right so like i was driving once and i saw this guy screaming at his girlfriend he was screaming at her i mean like I don't just mean yelling like they were on the sidewalk. I heard it like around the corner. And so I pulled up and I rolled down my window and I asked, are you okay?" to the woman? And he was like, she's fine. And I was like, I asked her and then he started to come toward my car. And I said, if you come near me, I'm going to call the police. So back the fuck off. I wasn't going to call the police at all. But that was the option that I had in that moment. I was like. Is he get, like he he could have beaten the shit out of me, you know, and then I asked her and she's like, I'm OK. He's just crazy. And I was like, well, it doesn't sound like you're OK, but I'm not going to do anything now. Like I asked if you're all right, you know, and so and I, and and it shocked him. And she was like, see, you can't talk to people like that. Like, that's what she said. People notice or whatever. And then I drove away. And so, you know, I understand that's a really small version of feeling like I had my back up to the wall, like to try to do what was right in that situation so people feel like that all the time like oh you did this or this or this like you should be put in prison you should be cast out of society you should be killed you should whatever it is and so that's its own version of like you know bad decisions and the own version of working out of desperation acting out of desperation so i want to undo that too right i want to undo that and i and there's not a lot of room for that right now. And the ways that people selectively apply when they think that that's okay and not okay seems really screwed up. So like, I think, you know, the whole sort of idea of how me too is working is actually a really important place to look for that right now. It's like, well, do we want to do cultural Exile, punishment. I'm not saying it always happens. That's the first argument that comes. Well, these men aren't actually losing their jobs and blah 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 blah. But it's like, but that's what that's what's being asked for, right? Like, is that people be cast out, people be imprisoned, people be all that kind of stuff? I don't want to support those systems. I don't have a solution for it, and and so I'm I'm also not going to, and I'm also not condemning the anger or the frustration or the hurt people particularly women are feeling about all this stuff, not at all. And I'm certainly not taking the side of the men or like, just get over it. But your solution has got to be something other than the state that is like, has a hand in creating these systems of power. Like you can't re perpetuate that in our idea of how to handle this. And it's the same with any, it's the same with any problem. I think that that's one that's particularly visible right now. And also Yeah. Also what happens in these situations when we start appealing to the state is like, then we have to decide that our hurt is at the level where the state should intervene. So like, if something bad happens to me, I'm not just talking in case of sexual assault, I'm talking about anything. If something bad happens to me, because I have this carceral punitive mindset, I have to say, I was hurt bad enough to say that this is definitively wrong in the eyes of culture and the law, and therefore the law should... You know, be able to intervene, imprison this person, take this person to court, have this person lose their job, blah, 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 blah. When in fact, it could be like, I was hurt, like this really sucked. Sometimes things in life are really painful and people treat each other in a shitty way. Can you help me? And people hear that and say, yes. And also, (laughs) let me just add another layer. It's like, because we think we have to do that, we begin to then creates situations inwardly of, I was violated for whatever reason, could be economically, it could be an errant comment on Twitter, it could have something to do with the way somebody touched us or whatever. I was violated in a way that is unhealable. um, Therefore, I need people to, therefore, people will listen. I was violated in a way that was so terrible that the law should intervene. And therefore, also, I can never forgive the person that did this or this or this, and nobody else should ever forgive them. And we should just never even try to really address this problem other than say it's wrong and ask the state to intervene. It's all bound together so tightly in a way that supports state power, punitive power, cultural power, people with guns, and ultimately the entire system that we're immersed in that is creating these problems and these violations in the first place.
0: Yeah. So like, why are these things happening? Like, why is sexual assault such a problem? Why? Like, all of that has to be addressed. And you can't, you know, the state is the hammer, you know, where everything looks like a nail. And you have to be if you're going to call the cops on someone, you should at least be asking the question, like, is what they did? Enough for them to lose their life over, yeah. Because that is always a possibility when you're calling the cops. You're calling men with guns who may not have the best training with those guns, or, and for me to
1: lose my life over, and if I for call. you to lose yeah, your life, <laughs> possibly. Depending yeah.
0: on who you are, yeah. where you at, where you're at, and what you look like, and stuff like that. You know, you have to be. You have to approach things with that kind of mindset. And most people don't. Most people don't want to have that one-on-one interaction with people if it is really scary. Like if your neighbors are being loud, have you considered going over there and talking to them? And this is a thing where I, you mentioned, you know, seeing potentially what could have turned into like a domestic violence situation on the street. Like people hear that where they live every single day. I've been, uh, you know, in apartments Where I've heard it on the other wall, I've been in the apartments where that was happening to me, you Mm -hmm. know, like I've, I've experienced both Mm. sides of this. And there's such a silence around it, because not only do people not call the cops generally in those situations, and it's arguable how helpful they are. They're usually not helpful anyway. But not only do people not call the cops, but they also don't reach out and see if everything's okay. So you even saying that and pointing that out and being a mirror to that guy, Uh like he was so outrageous and out of line that like a stranger came up to him and was Uh like, is everything okay? That's a huge... Thing and who knows, you know what ended up happening in that situation. But that's such an important thing to do to say, I see what's going on, like I see you, and I'm here for you. And like, people didn't know what was going on in my situation because like I was able to hide it so well. And like even afterwards, (laughs) people were like, Well, I just assumed you had it handled. I just thought you were strong enough and you had it handled. And like I think a lot of us make that assumptions if we hear what's happening with our neighbors and stuff. It's like, well, they're adults. Hopefully, they have it handled, but are there ways to build community are there ways to like if you see your neighbor out and you know they're yeah. not with their abusive partner you can go up to them and be like hey is everything okay do you need a safe space like what are some ways that you can kind of build communities so that there are other ways of support besides the police because sometimes the police aren't going to come to your neighborhood either
1: if they are called yeah you're yeah, right that's places, true you
0: know like it doesn't even or they'll
1: show up and dismiss the entire thing you know yeah and and then what What kind of power does that give to the abuser when the police are like, nah, nothing to be done. But mm-hmm. also, I mean, by the way, doing that, being able to say something to a stranger also supports and amplifies your ability to say that if you're ever in situations that are bad. Yes. It, it, it helps you communicate with someone that you think is doing you wrong. And it helps you be able to create boundaries for yourself when you think someone's doing. So it's like that inner work helps other people. And it also gives you something in your own life, you Mm -hmm. know, and I think that that's really important. I think that that really, honestly, there's so much about what's happening now that it's super, super materialist, even in people who are just, you know, leftist socialists or whatever, this idea that let's just arrange the pieces of our culture in the right way, and then everything will be fine but it's not true. We have a lot of inner work to do as individuals. We have a lot of work to do on ourselves. I also understand that we have spiritual work to do, but that's a complicated thing for me to communicate to people. So let me just say, I think we have psychoanalytic work to do with (laughs) ourselves. You know, we'll just start there, you know, and not Jung, but Freud and Lacan and Klein and Winnicott and, uh, Breon and those people instead of to Monteblanco, those kinds of analysts, not young. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but I think that we have, we have that kind of that responsibility to ourselves. So when I talk, for instance, about sexual boundaries, you know, I get asked to speak a lot about consent when I talk at colleges and stuff. And I always say, look, no one has a right to push your boundary or to cross your threshold at all. Nobody does. But, you do have a duty to investigate your own boundaries on your own in ways that are safe to you. It could be through masturbation. It could be through experimenting with somebody you feel safe with. It could be by talking to somebody, whatever, whatever it is. It could be by keeping a dream journal for all I care. But if you don't do that, you will eventually create in yourself, like you'll become like the operation board game where like Mm -hmm. one wrong move and you like Mm -hmm. light up with tension. And it's like, Start doing that work for yourself. Otherwise, your boundaries become weapons aimed at other people. And this is true sexually as it is with everything else. And you, we know that this is true because the place in the world where we see the most inviolable boundaries um, and, and people acting completely out of boundary and violated boundary is Israel. Israel is the extension of not investigating what your own boundaries are and doing any self-reflective work. It's a country that is completely founded on its notion of victimhood. In some way, this new culture of Western culture of glorification of victimhood and boundary and totally violated forever and never forgiving is an expression of Israel permeating the entirety of the Western consciousness. We need to do work to say, okay, horrible shit happened. Now, what do I want to absorb that and spit it out again into the world and act constantly out of my wound and my sense of boundary? Or do I want to heal? Do I want to hear other people, even though it might be difficult sometimes? Do I want the world to look different? You know?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do we shift from a retributive mindset to a restorative mindset yeah when so much of the culture is based on that kind of victimhood mentality and that kind of retreat like with me too it is such an important part of history like what's happening now is so 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 important and it's a topic that i've cared about for so so long Mm -hmm. and when me too first started i've talked about this on other podcasts i've done about it like i didn't really think it would get much traction i was kind of like Mm -hmm. okay people are gonna pretend to care about you know, sexual assault now, I guess, for like yeah. three months and then it'll be over with. But it's it's been carrying on. And I'm still skeptical of how these uh, violators are going to be handled, though. Like, do they get their careers back? Do they kind of come back like how? But why is it about them? It should yes, be totally. about the victims. Yes. What? <laughs> how are the victims restored? someone like Harvey Weinstein could pay out all of his victims yeah. I mean at least and I there have been things that have happened to me like there's never going to be justice for there just isn't I can't hope for that you know like I can't hope mm-hmm. the only way that's going to fix that is you know maybe if I get a fucking time machine or something but it's not going to happen I mm-hmm. have to deal with that on my own I have to figure out ways to restore myself and having those conversations with people who violated you and, and trying to appeal to their Humanity, that could be a part of it. Harvey Weinstein and some of these other people paying people for the damage they've done is pretty much the bare minimum. Like, that's the very right. least you can do to try to restore some type of, restore what was taken away. I mean, in the case yeah. of Louis C.K., I mean, careers were ruined, Yeah, uh, not him his victims like careers were ruined and the people uh, that
1: worked on his show that then the show got shut down yeah yeah those are careers one ruined, mississippi
0: too. one of my fucking favorite shows yeah. ever yeah. <laughs> like did not get renewed whether it was for other reasons or louis ck reasons whatever but yeah like how do we shift our mindset and how do we make it about the victims how do we make it about instead of punishing the person who did what everyone will agree is wrong it's not even an argument of what What happened was unacceptable and wrong and life-ruining, potentially. But, like, there are ways to fix this that go beyond just throwing someone in a cage or trying to take their job away or things like that. Like, ostracizing, I think, is a good tool for predators, especially repeat predators Mm -hmm. who don't really seem like... They're going to be rehabilitated because I do have an issue with just trotting someone out after like you know some rehabilitation and they're it's it's fine and we can just pretend like they're okay and things have never happened. Depending on what the
1: rehabilitation is, depends on what it is and
0: like how they've uh, come to terms with it and stuff like that. I do think when it comes to sexual predators, you're sometimes dealing with really, I don't know how how much can they kind of be rehabbed. I'm not really sure, but if they are in a position of power influence. How can that be used to help the victims regain some of their own peace and
1: freedom? Well, you know, it's really interesting because like the one thing that RV Weinstein said, which I thought was an opportunity, but then nothing came of it. He said at some point, he's like, I'm going to dedicate my life to doing good in the world. Or he said something like that, right? See, you're rolling your eyes and basically everybody rolled their eyes. But when he said that, I thought, you got a lot of money. What if we got the people who you fucked over to determine how you would do that? Right? Like, maybe you're not even paying them. Maybe I agree with you that reparations would actually be a really good idea for some of those women. But maybe actually, they decide where your resources go to. Or maybe like, we have some other idea of like, Yeah, you don't get to do that to make yourself feel better about yourself. But if you genuinely want to enter into a system where you're making reparations to culture as well as people for the shit that you've done in your life, great. You got a ton of money. We'll take you up on it. And maybe over time we can forgive you just as we forgive someone who – I mean I would at least – someone murdered somebody 20 years ago and they're fucking in prison for 20 years. They're in hell. Right. Like, and I, and I feel okay being like, it was 20 years ago, guys. Like this person is undergone hell. Like it sucks. But I would trust a lot of times that that person would be different, you know, mm-hmm. or whatever that in, in the most part, I'm not talking about letting John Wayne Gacy, like, you know, like chill at the, you know, play school or whatever, you know, yeah. or, but, but you know what I'm saying? It's like over time, seeing what someone has done when they really have... Ha- because the the problem is with him, Weinstein in particular, I mean, with all this shit with the fucking spies... The, that Israel, is shit like, got so it, wild. it just like, insane, bring an ex-Massad into this.
0: Like, <laughs> but, shit got weirder than I ever could
1: have fucking... It got crazy, right? But with someone like him, because he has so much money, he would not necessarily have that wake-up moment, right? Where yeah. someone's like, oh you did all these horrible things well if you're totally unaffected by all the people saying that in any sort of material or day-to-day way you're probably not going to have that revelation that oh you did something wrong but if you had so then if you're like oh i'm just going to go spend my money on like hillary clinton's next you know insane venture or whatever it is you know bullshit but if you had Unfortunately, that's probably what some of the people, <laughs> that's probably what like Rose McGowan or someone would have him direct his um, money to, right? But, but like, <laughs> but if we had those people, an outside force saying, okay, but you don't get to decide that. We're going to actually take some of this power and do something useful with it as like a coalition of people who have been harmed by you, that might do something. That might yeah. have him wake up. And I think, could over time lend to him being forgiven as long as it's not just, I'm just paying out my fucking alimony to rape victims, you know, like there's some, some other process that's under, that's underway there, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, if, yeah, I mean, this, this, when it comes to serial predators, like, like him and like a few others, and it is this very small percentage of the population that are truly unrepentant when Mm. it comes to sexual crimes and, you know, if he resents his victims enough to do that to them in the first place, it's forcing him to pay them money right. isn't going to help with that resentment. It's not going to lead to any kind of self-development. Also, I mean, is there ever really going to be any self-development? They're like, Yeah, you're right. There are some people. Stuff like that, but yeah. there are some people, and that is why, in some ways, the idea of this very punitive system exists is to punish that very small we're talking five percent of people who are just truly evil and like John
1: McCain. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> right like well, no that's like a great like he's someone i could never see as being redeemed ever no matter what he did at this point i would be like you're miserable and you've done horrible things your whole life goodbye you're done i can't accept it anymore
0: that's how i right. feel yeah with that's, a how lot I feel about, that's how i feel about that's how i feel about weinstein of, too yeah actually, i, I yeah. feel that way about weinstein and you you hit a, a good root cause you mentioned israel earlier yeah well there's no restoration in the Bible. Right. <laughs> God's solution to everything is to just kill everyone off. Uh-huh. <laughs> and you can see so much of that influence on our culture. Like, what do we do when bad things happen? Or, like, what is our kind of default solution? Like, right. throw them in a cage, exile them from society, or just kill them you know or or whatever it's and it's like no there's better ways of doing things it doesn't have to be a black and white situation it doesn't and especially uh when you have so many people incarcerated for bullshit too like yeah. they the system doesn't just select those you know focus on imprisoning and separating that f- maybe five percent or so of the population that's like truly bad like and all that, it fo- it's expanded out so much farther than that. It's it's yeah. hitting so many other people who are innocent, who are, you know, doing things to just survive or just doing things because there's no reason why they shouldn't be allowed to do them, really.
1: Uh, well, I mean, so Louis, Kiz- Louis C.K. is like another example, right? I don't think – I used to, but I actually don't think anymore – that he realizes that what he did was wrong. There was a moment where I thought, "Oh, he probably knows." He apologized to those women, like over the years, blah blah blah. But now, sort of knowing more that I know, also talking to people that know him, I don't think that he understands that what he did was wrong. Right? So,
0: well, he asked permission
1: before he did it, right? <laughs> well, that was that was his like weird idea. Yeah. Now. There's a part of that whole situation where I'm like, people are so fucked up about sex in our culture that we don't know how to have any conversations. Like the the victims don't even know how to report what happened to them without being affected by the horrible, idiotic ideas about sex that we have in our culture, right? So like, there's a broad problem. And so there's a part of that that we share with Louis C.K. in the sense of, Not the victim sharing it with him, not the responsibility, any of that kind of stuff. But we all share this like culture of bad ideas about sex. However, beyond that, I actually feel like he doesn't think that what he did was wrong. And I think a lot of people around him don't think that what he did was wrong. And I think he has a lot of money and it's probably not really affected him. And he really did hurt people that he had power over. Okay, so... Now we have this question, what do we do with people that will never see that what they did was wrong? Never, right? Like you were talking about your abuser before. I have someone in my life who beat the shit out of me, who, you know, was my boyfriend at the time. I was in the hospital, you know, never apologized. you know, and I'll never have that apology. So now I have an image of him as being like this sweet, charming, amazing person that I love and also this image of him over me, you know. Jamming his knee into my stomach, you know, and breaking my rib and all that. So I can't bring those two together. And that's what culture's problem is with Louis C.K. It's like, You are once this person that really is, let's face it, fucking hilarious. Like he's funny and he's smart. And on the other hand, you're this fucking asshole that can't understand that you did this shit and you probably never will understand it. And we're having trouble bringing those two sides together. That's a huge and vital cultural question for us right now. Hmm. What do we do with the people that maybe they do do things that we actually like in the world and they're incapable of seeing themselves as responsible for their shitty actions at the same time? It's almost as if, in some ways, the way we organize culture has to be, how do we as people deal with the fact that there are people who cannot ever understand that their actions have consequences, it's a small percentage, like you say, without doing to them what they've done to us? How do we do that? That's our that's our challenge. And also, and not deny them their humanity like i said louis ck is fucking funny and he did this fucking horrible thing so let's not pretend that we didn't all think he was fucking hilarious you know let's not pretend that woody allen did never make a good movie because of these horrible things he did now what now what do we do it, it, is it just a question of <laughs> is it just a question of destroy them and everything we've ever thought of them or do we have a more complicated task ahead of us I don't have answers to that, but I think we need, we owe it to ourselves to admit that this is a complicated problem without an mm-hmm. easy solution. Cause the easy yes. solution is the gun. That's the easy solution. And I don't want to take that, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it, I think it, it is very hard for people to kind of reconcile those ideas in their own mind. Um, Cause I, I definitely have the same thing against various people who've abused me. Like I can see, you know both sides. Like I could see the potential that they of you know who they were as a creative, intelligent person, and the some, the cool stuff we did and the cool stuff we created. And then on on the other hand, there is this like monstrous side that it's like I I could not understand that, and mm-hmm. I I don't know that I'll ever be able to really understand that. There aren't easy solutions for this, and the state is the worst, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't want what was done to me to be done to them.
1: I don't like, either. I really
0: don't. I don't want anyone to have to go through that. That's not, I like, I just, I don't want, want to be become, I
1: don't them. want to become them.
0: And I don't want to become them. Yes. Either. Yeah. Right. Right. And I, and, and I do have a kind of issue with the whole idea of, Well, Abusers are people who've been abused. Hmm.
1: It's not that simple. Either. It's not that simple. Because plenty of people have been abused who don't abuse people. Yeah.
0: The majority. Yeah. Right, of them don't right, go right. on to abuse other people. Yeah. And so, and so yeah, it it is a huge complicated thing. We have to be asking different questions when it comes to things like Me Too. I think some of the wrong questions are being asked and people need to really take a lot longer to think about it and explore different ways of restoring the victims and how and also Mm -hmm. how do we prevent stuff like this from happening again what is this kind of coming out of like what are some things that can be fixed now like opening up space to have more conversations and like you know how are how is the culture affecting men in particular who tend to be the main you know abusers in these situations i haven't seen as many something that's starting it somewhat grates on me because I, I've been involved in just various spaces, and I am the type of person who will get, like, fully immersed in something, and then I'll find, I'll, you know, I find out that so many of the people at the top of whatever it is are just really monstrous people. Like, even tiny amounts of power mm. corrupt people, uh, especially in, like, political activism. So, what do you do? Like, so many of the spaces I've left and just been like, ah, fuck it all. It was so terrible because i've seen up close the monsters in them and the way that they've been protected through social capital or mm-hmm. things like that and i don't see as many me too cases coming out about people more so in my generation mm-hmm. who are abusive mm-hmm. it's all like oh it's Harvey Weinstein and it's Louis CK and it's all these and it's Woody Allen like it's all these kind of old creepy dudes like the old creepy dude stereotype and it's like it's not just old creepy dudes right. who are doing this right. it's people in the millennial generation that are still getting away with this and there's still people who are so scared to come forward and because i'm outspoken with a lot of this stuff i do get a lot of messages of people being like oh you were so right about so and so i was they you know mm. abused me or like whatever and i have so many pieces of information about certain people that I feel powerless to do anything with I just you know try to help the victims because like as much as I want to kind of take them down I also know that there's still a broader problem of victims not not wanting to take the risk of going public and I don't blame them for that at all it's yeah. still even in a kind of I wouldn't even call it post me too because this is an evolving kind of thing but in this newer kind of me too world it should be safer to come out and talk about it it should be safer to like come out you should have more protections but we're not even there yet
1: but part like, part not... of that yeah i'm sorry yeah <laughs> do you want to keep going
0: yeah but uh, i was just saying it, yeah. it's it's frustrating because again you kind of feel especially if you've been a, a victim of some type of abuse you can see mm-hmm. the good parts of me too you can see like finally people are talking about this and like making it a broader conversation but, oh, my God, they're so limited in their solutions. And, oh, my God, like, I want this to be a moment that doesn't just fade into history but carries on and actually brings other types of solutions. So if I'm going to be a part of it, I have to be a part of making those solutions. Like, we have to be starting from a kind of ground-up mentality and examining our, our mm-hmm. other kind of smaller communities and figuring figuring out what to do with the people who – who there's still like whisper networks about or like it's an open secret that such and such in say uh, like bitcoin was a world i was in uh for a lot and interviewed a lot of people on my podcast about it but i in the bitcoin space there are some very bad sexual predators at very high power positions and it is kind of like this weird open secret everyone kind of knows that so and so you know drugs and rapes people and like that's not Mm -hmm. okay like that's not okay that it's just still kind of like well it's like we can have these conversations that we can be more combative with things like it's i'm hopefully me too is kind of opening up that space to be more kind of in your face about like this is you know still
1: happening i think i think i would say I be- I agree with the sentiment of what you're saying. I don't know that I would say it in that way. Let me just sort of re, just with the last part. Everything else, totally on board with. But I think we need to be, in some ways, I would say, less combative about the way we talk about things. So, for instance, there's a great book called The Trauma Myth by Susan Clancy. Susan Clancy interviewed, I think, two hundred over two hundred children who had been molested by adults who had been molested as children. They all, I might be getting that number wrong, but whatever, you can read the book. They all said a very similar thing. Like, no, it wasn't violent. It wasn't really traumatic. It felt weird when it was happening. Yeah. And she understood that what happened was when they reconfigured it later, because they understood it, it had a really intense effect on them. But the idea that it was trauma was not true She kept saying it was violation. It is a horrible thing to do. Don't ever do this as a child. It fucks people up in a very intense way. Blah, 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 blah. But trauma is maybe not the right word for it. Trauma designates a different set of like histories and symptoms. So, of course, because she said that, even though again and again in the book she reiterates this is not violence, this isn't violence. She was like got in huge hot water for saying this. But what she was pointing out, which is really profound, is – Our narrative culturally about kids who have been – this is all going back to your point, by the way. I will get there. But our narrative about kids being – when they're molested, being violently raped by adults, forcibly raped, that's our idea of how it works. That's actually a very small percentage of cases. Mm -hmm. And because people don't see that in the cultural narrative, they don't report, and then they blame themselves for what has happened. Now, let's take this – you know, back to what you were saying, we don't have language even really in place to talk about what happens when something violates, when we feel it violates us sexually, or something, you know, terrible happens, or something just uncomfortable, or whatever. And the way that it's been coming up again and again with Me Too stuff has always made me feel very uncomfortable as someone who was brutally physically assaulted by his boyfriend and then repeatedly sexually assaulted by one person, which I'm not going to go into that right now. But like, I just thought like when I was reading something about someone being called a bitch at work or having their ass grabbed or something, I was like, please, like, this is not the same conversation. Like as the person who's talking about being raped. And I understood that like, (laughs) that was overused. Like people were then being like, well, no one's lumping it in. People understand they're not lumped in. And I thought, no, 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 we we don't get it. Like culturally, we don't get it because there's a narrative out there that to be sexually assaulted means this, or means this, or means this. We actually are confused about these terms and we are trying to tease them out. We don't have a language to talk about when something feels this, when this kind of violation happens, or when this thing that's just unpleasant, but is maybe not a violation happens when blah, blah, blah. And so, (laughs) all that is to say like we're still developing our our words now but a lot of what's happening in me too is the presumption that we actually already know what we're saying when we say it that we already have the language in place and it's just not true and we need to do that we need to do that work and the aziz ansari moment was was productive almost productive i would say in like people were like there's a lot going on here that we have to talk about that maybe we haven't considered before. I think, unfortunately, it was sort of like taken in in really polar directions that maybe were not also very useful. So <laughs> let me just make a couple more points. <laughs> I know, like there's so much to say that it's just like blah, blah, blah. But like,
2: there's also layers. Layers. just
1: before I got here, I was talking to my friend who's I know his boyfriend was abusive. I know it. And his boyfriend has been threatening to say that he was abusive. Now, his boyfriend has been arrested for violence, is in anger management, has probably, well, yeah, has addiction issues. Not that that's a condemnation of somebody, but just has sent messages to his boyfriend out of the space. And so I know, and and I know three people who have been falsely accused. Three, publicly. Some of them public figures. I also know that There are these situations like I was talking about before where I feel like languaging and all that kind of stuff is being conflated. Things are being misunderstood, lumped together. So this is like, it's a long, long, long discussion. And we can't hope to do it simply by talking about power dynamics or feminism or any of that kind of stuff alone. We have to also talk about sex openly as a culture. We have to talk about boundaries we have to talk about punishment we have to talk about all these kinds of things that you and I are discussing and I don't think that the Me Too movement is doing that so like when you said oh it gained traction I didn't think it would last this long like I don't think the good part is is still really in the forefront I think that there are all these really intense amazing core issues that we do need to talk about and are really important the silence is broken yeah the Mm -hmm. cultural silence is broken great but the work that has built out of that silence, I actually don't think that that's doing anything to encourage. There's a way in which our current conversation is just another form of silence, you know.
0: Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. Um, and like I, with me too, it's bringing up all of these other topics, and we can't just ignore them. Like we yeah. can't just pretend like they're not actually happening. And I don't know. I kind of take the mindset that it should be a very broad thing because. A lot of these violations have some root causes, or they're connected in some kind of way, and I don't want there to be gatekeeping around the idea of what is sexual assault, like oh well, if it's not like violent rape, it doesn't count like what what I hated about the issues and sorry thing yeah. was everyone downplaying what that was. okay, maybe it's not it's not this violent stranger dally rape. Scenario that a bunch of people are thinking probably when it comes to like Weinstein stuff, but like yeah, what is the language you describe it? It's still not okay. That's a what happened in that situation is a much more common occurrence that happens to people than what Harvey Weinstein did and what some of these other more violent kind of predators have done. That deserves to be part of the discussion. That deserves to be part of a kind of broader conversation and yeah, we are trying to figure out terminologies. Like I had a discussion in uh this group I was in about the term rape by deception. Like uh, we were hashing out like, okay, what does that mean? Legally it means a certain thing, but like If if we if we look at it just by its definition, that covers a whole umbrella of behaviors that are unacceptable, Mm. you know, and we're so hesitant to use the word rape because we have such a narrow way of thinking about it. Mm. Um, And then if you even come up with this other term, oh, well, rape by deception. Well, what is that term being used legally for? what's historically been used like the precedent that's been said is targeting trans people mm-hmm. actually because mm-hmm. it's like oh well rape by deception is when you know a trans person tricks someone into sleeping with them and stuff like that and actually the only person i believe that's been prosecuted under that law was like a trans person but why isn't it when your partner gives you an std because they were being untruthful about mm-hmm. who they were sleeping with and that derails your whole life or like every violation of like the consent agreement that you may have had that's a much more common circumstance like cheating like what what how are we defining something like that the the violations that can occur within that Mm -hmm. you know it's it's all it may be different levels of violations and like maybe we don't have to get super bogged down in terminology but i think it is good to have some clarification and some kinds of I don't know, ways about talking about things that aren't just like, well, it's either rape or it's not rape. And right. if it's not rape, it's not as important and it's not as right. meaningful. And it's like, yeah, I, di- I didn't want that to get lost in the whole kind of Me Too discussion because it did mm-hmm. seem like it started getting to a point of like, oh, well, let's compare this to like the worst possible thing. And oh, it's not as bad. It's like, no, it's not as bad, but it's still unacceptable. And like, right. it happens more often. So like, it's okay if we talk about these smaller violate smaller, I mean, there's still violations that are happening, and that includes a huge topic about sex and cons- or a huge discussion about sex and consent that just is being, I guess, like awkwardly handled now. Like in some ways, more eloquently yeah. by some people than others. But uh...
1: <laughs> there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stumbling around. I mean, I think one of the reasons why you want to make these distinctions between this disease and sorry thing and Harvey Weinstein, helping people who have been. In these situations, the way you would help people would be different in each of these cases. Just yes. as that, that's why I brought up the Susan Clancy thing. The way you would help someone who had been traumatized by violent rape as a child versus someone who had been molested in both reporting, but also treatment and helping to heal are different. So we need different kinds of ways of looking at these events because they the difference in the ways of looking give us the best chance of helping the people who have undergone the, the, whatever has happened. The reason I would oppose saying something like rape by deception is because it's not for the reason that the people that you were talking about, where, where it's like, well, that's not rape. That's this, right? I would say what we need to do is actually come up with words that we can point to instead of just saying not rape, instead of just a word that just designates what is not. We need to actually come up with a term for these sorts of things. We need to come up with our own exact language that really Names the things because we do run the risk of lumping things together, but we also run the risk of dismissing things unless we lump them together. So that's – and that's because we haven't done any real proactive work of giving new names to these events that happen. And we also haven't done any work really in understanding that – most sex is what we call gray area. Well, there's there's totally immersive, enthusiastic consent where everybody feels great and then there's rape, you know, it's like, no, actually most sex is neither of those things. Most sex. And that doesn't make it good or bad. I'm not going to make any pronouncement on whatever. Most sex is something else. Most sex is confusing unsatisfying some parts of it you like some parts of it you don't like sometimes you leave and feel bad about it but nothing really bad happens sometimes you know and as a sex worker I know this it's like there are so many reasons to have sex sometimes you have sex to get a job sometimes you have sex with someone because your partner feels like shit and you want to make them feel better but you don't really feel like doing it but like you love your partner so you do it sometimes you're bored sometimes it's silly like you want to just have sex with a friend because it's goofy sometimes you want affection there are so many reasons to have sex that might not sometimes you do it for money and you do it with a partner you're not attracted to for money that can't fall under these ideas of total mutual enthusiastic 100 enthusiastic consent by both parties and what our culture wants to say is and if it doesn't that's rape. and so that's why i want to address like we just need better language for talking about all of these things. But the language isn't going to come from naming it this or naming it that. It's going to come from actually having conversations about our experiences. Yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. And, well, this podcast I was only supposed to be about I hour, <laughs> it has gone on and on, which is always my favorite. <laughs> it's always my favorite type of podcast to do. But I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know yeah. you're a very busy man. Um, but thank you so much for coming on. Wow, like I could just keep talking to you for another yeah, couple yeah, we hours, could go on. Yeah. But like I, I know you got stuff to do. Um, we can do another one in the future. We can well. do. I yeah. hope so. Okay, because yeah, I really think these are some of the most especially. To i mean it's such a massive topic it's mm-hmm. so important to me and it's so crucial to be having these conversations at this point in history because that's going to set up so much like in the future too yeah totally so uh but i i thanks so much for coming on and tell me about what you're going to be working on what projects do you have coming up and okay. where can people find you
1: okay so my show is against everyone with connor veeb it's a dual formats podcast, which is how most people do it is, you know, they subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher, or whatever. Um, but it's also on YouTube as video. So you can check it out there. I have a Patreon that's linked to that. Patreon.com forward slash Connor, Habib, C O N N E R H A B I B. And, um, it's, Uh, that's just, you know, like you get cool stuff if you sign up for that and support the show. And it really makes a huge difference for me. I have a course coming up, an online course where, uh, I'm teaching about James Joyce's Ulysses and that starts on June the 16th, which is the day the events in that book take place. And so you can sign up for that if you just go, if you go to my Twitter I'm tweeting about it a lot. So that's just at Connor Habib. So you'll probably see it there because, oh, wait, no, I actually have it on my website. So if you go to connorhabibcom forward slash Ulysses, I have it there. That's right. We're, at, we're like out of touch with our own websites now, I feel like. But, but you, so if you've always wanted to read Ulysses and like you found yourself sort of intimidated by how difficult everybody says it is, or, you know, how long it is or whatever, this is your chance. So it's like, I give uh seven videos like uh, uh, over the course of 6 weeks and then we meet at the end and we all discuss it on like a live webinar and yeah so
0: Awesome! So, awesome! Well, sweet. Well, we solved, I guess, most of the world's problems all in done. this podcast. I will um, yeah. we'll work on the rest next okay. time. <laughs> Good
1: job. <laughs> I think clean water is the last one. Oh, no, we talked about water this time. So, we did yeah. talk about water. All right. so like uh, the, the clean water is uh, important. leash laws. I don't know what else is left. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I don't
0: know. We've pretty much covered everything. Yeah. <laughs> and I like having someone on who's going to challenge my points and disagree with me a little bit too. I think
1: that's. Uh, <laughs> I think that's. Great. I feel like I agreed with everything. I just did like some of the language around it. I think I would use, I think you and I agree on everything.
0: Yeah, I think we're, we're pretty close to the same, but yeah, I love being challenged. Um, and it's why, you know, I like so much of your other work too. Oh, so thank you. thanks again for coming on. And of course you can find my stuff on patreon.com slash MK Lords. And then Iconisass on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and then I'm MK Lords everywhere else. And send love mail to iconisass at gmail.com. <laughs>